All right, great souls. This is our last class for, as they always say, this year. Okay, we're on number 177. It is a common belief these days that until a child is actually born, it is not yet consciously de a consciously developing human being. This belief is fallacious. When does the soul enter the body? Someone asked the master. At the moment of conception, he replied. When the sperm and ovum unite, there is a flash of light in the astral world. Souls there that are ready to be reborn, if their vibration matches that of the flash of light, rush to get in. Sometimes two or more get in at the same time, and the woman has twins, triplets, or even, well, it is important, therefore, to come together physically with an uplifted consciousness. That flash uh, generated in the astral world reflects the couple's state of consciousness, especially as they felt during the moment of physical union. You know, it's um, because of the question of terminating pregnancies and so on, that question of what is the actual reality of an unborn soul, an unborn baby, is a really huge one these days. Master was just unequivocal about it. He didn't, you know, he didn't spend any time speculating. He just made that as a declaration. That's a very disconcerting um, revelation for a lot of people in our time because so many people have made the decision to terminate pregnancies. Um, I, I always talk about the subject very gently because you never know when you're talking to a room who you're talking to. I know Swamiji um, has always been very sympathetic in the sense that um, if you have one set of understandings when you make a certain decision and then later on you have a different understanding, um, you have to be um, sensible about yourself. Um, it's the most important point implication from this is um, what's going on in our society is not wholesome and it's not neutral. It's a, it's a very, very difficult question from a spiritual point of view. And uh, it's just one of the many, many, many aspects of um, the transition from Kali Yuga into Dwapar that we're going to have to work with. But it is helpful for many reasons to have Master just make such an absolutely unequivocal statement. You can dispute what the Master says, but you can't dispute what he said. He just, I mean, you can dispute whether you believe it or not, but you can't dispute what he said. It also is, you know, has the logic behind it, which is it's the, um, the pattern of the chakras in the individual soul that um, is the magnetism that draws the it draws together the atoms of matter that make the body and the, the body simply can't develop without there being a core energy um, to set the karma that's going to manifest. It doesn't just kind of manifest generically for a while and then after a while the soul comes into it. Um, I've never been pregnant but women who have been tell me that one, they can often feel the moment of conception and two, they can often sense the consciousness of the child that's come to them way, way, you know, just right at the start of the whole story. And all of that is borne out by what Master says. There's another implication of 
of what he writes here that I think is interesting, especially considering um, November 2016 in the USA when we're, um, we're experiencing a, 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 an interesting evidence of a shift of consciousness in a, in a really strong sense, evidenced by the recent election that we had here. Um, and Swamiji often commenting in, the, in political discussions about how the individual person who ends up being a leader of a country, whether as a dictator, as an elected leader, even as a, a hereditary monarch or the son of a, a dictator or whatever it might be, it's, it's that individual is the apex of the karma of the whole country and uh, not usually is that individual actually the, de the, de the determining force for the karma. He's but an instrument of that karma. Um, many of you, I think it might even be in this book, Master talked about Hitler was an instrument for the karma of the German people and the Jews, but Hitler was not personally responsible. I'm certainly he didn't get good karma for what he did, but he didn't personally create that destiny. Um, he was rather an instrument of it. For, for reasons that he didn't explain fully, Master made a distinction with Stalin and said that Stalin was personally responsible for what he made happen there. Now, obviously also, there had to be karma in Russia to draw such a man. Um, but you're thinking about the USA or thinking about the whole world because uh, at this time, in, in the transition between Dwapar Yuga and Kali, that there's a, a whole trend in that direction where people are wanting to... Um, well, they're, they're basically advocating Kali Yuga values because the, the very nature of Kali Yuga is that things are separate. And that, that's why, you know, in previous times, you, you, you couldn't travel, you, you didn't speak but one language, you didn't understand a culture other than your own. You know, China, India, they were just complete mysteries. When Marco Polo traveled and came back to Europe and told what he'd seen, his name became synonymous with an impossible-to-believe tall tale. To tell a Marco Polo was to just describe something so preposterous no one would believe you. And all he'd done was just seen culture so different than the one that he grew up in. But that's what Kali Yuga is about. Kali Yuga is about form, and form is fixed, and differences appear to be um, unbridgeable. If you're dark-skinned, you're completely different than if you're light-skinned. If you speak Chinese, you're completely different than if you speak Spanish. And just the idea that that those differences are superficial and that what unifies us is our consciousness and our energy, that's Dwapara Yuga. Kali Yuga looks at the form, sees the difference, and that's it. You just don't bridge it. It was, you know, until relatively recent in the U.S., if you were a black person and a white person, it was, it was against the law to marry. It wasn't merely socially unpopular, it was actually illegal. You just, you just simply weren't allowed to do it. Now you think, it's like ethnicities and races are just, you see it more mixed sometimes than not mixed. It's just a completely different reality. Okay, now, but 
what we're seeing in as we shift from Kali to Dwapara is we're seeing an intensification of of uh, uh, oppositional points of view. You know, in our recent election in the United States, we weren't quite evenly divided, but very closely, close to evenly divided, with a tremendous uh, force uh, going against each other. I don't honestly think either candidate was really Dwapara in the truest sense, but nonetheless, these oppositional energies and um, quite apart from it, let's move away from politics for a minute, there's a, a kind of wildness to our society right now. I mean, almost to the whole world, and it's so powerfully manifested through the popular culture and the popular music. Swamiji remarks that music represents consciousness, but also music creates consciousness. Both things are true, so you get started on what can only be called a vicious cycle, and then much of it really is vicious, where the music becomes more and more dissonant, the lyrics become more and more crude. I, you know, I was just like in some, I don't know, supermarket, just some completely neutral place where children would operate. And some, there was some cacophonous music, you know, very disharmonious. And I actually sort of tuned into the words. Well, I was embarrassed. They were so crude, just so completely crude. And the theme was totally sexual. But it was like, let's see if we can reduce sexuality to the crudest, most animalistic level we can imagine, in which it's totally selfish. Let's just, let's just try to make it selfish, as selfish as we can. I was just playing in the supermarket. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't anywhere. And what happens when people just hear that all the time? And when young people just hear that all the time? And just we know what's happening in our society. It's just sexuality is utterly all-pervasive and casual and irresponsible. It just goes on and on. And, and, and activated by this extreme low chakra um, force that people don't even think about. They just go out. They just go out for the night and they drink and they dance or whatever it is but all of it just emphasizing the lowest vibration. Therefore, and because now the uh, uh, sexual restraint, in, especially in many Western countries, is just virtually non-existent. It just, it just isn't even part of our culture. Um, there's a lot of flashes of light going out into the astral world. I mean, it's just so obvious. There's a lot of flashes of light going out in the astral world that are not real refined and so who do you think is going to be born and so it, it all gets to be this real interesting self-perpetuating cycle where the more the culture goes in this direction the more people are, are, are sending out astral vibrations the more um, uh, souls you know uh, in tune with that downward pulling energy um, will find openings, they'll find wombs, they'll find families, and then they'll come in and they'll carry it out even more. And that's why you see um, more and more outrageous things happening at younger and younger ages, because I think it's just people um, who you be, here we are. And you would have to think, I would have to think that uh, 
uh, it would be great fun for a demonic energy, a, a violent, destructive energy to come in at a time when everything's going to get to fall apart. I mean, somebody has to do it at the uh, at the Kali Yuga turn. I mean, this is this is a strange turn because this is the tension between the old, the downward, and the upward, and the upward is win, is going to win. So this is not a this is not a down, down, down cycle. Of course, I mean, they happen. They're just part of, uh, it's just what a planet does. A planet provides a certain atmosphere for certain people to do certain things. I mean, the disciples of Jesus and right after were going into Kali Yuga descending. And I was, and talked about this in several places. There was absolutely no point in trying to create anything because everything was just on its way to disintegration. Why would you create a building like this um, to be a temple for this teaching when the barbarians were coming, which the barbarians literally did, burn the, you know, knock down the buildings, burn the libraries, just took everything to the ground. It's really interesting when I, I saw Biasa many years ago, now it's in the book that Biasa and Purushottama wrote, but you, you just go down into that period, the nadir of it, 500 AD, and it's just the barbarians just swept across the civilized world and just burned and just pillaged and destroyed everything. So right after Jesus was there, what was the point? Whereas we are in Kali Yuga rising, so we have to work very hard, as Master set the example, to, to build things that will set the, the vibration, even set the, even the form perhaps, unless these will be destroyed in some way, I don't know, but certainly set the power because that power this time is meant to endure. Otherwise, Master would not have called us to this life. Before, when we were with Jesus, we got called to a different kind of life. Um, but this, this one also, if it goes as Master says it's going to go, and there's certainly signs all over the planet that it's going to, it's, it's just going to require some very coarse people. It's going to, I, I mean, I jokingly say, you know, to a very large extent, the barbarians have breached the walls. And that's just what's happening. And I don't even just mean the people who are elected to office. I just mean in general. You know, there's a, there are souls who, who have a passion for violence and destruction. I mean, but when you think about it, much of it is like in pop culture. I mean, this is from a long time ago, because I haven't watched this a long time ago, but for a long time. But I remember when the era was there and the, the hard, uh, hard rock musicians, sometimes they'd smash things on the stage and stuff like that. I mean, like, what is that? And why do people think that's really marvelous to watch? To just watch things being broken to pieces and the, the very instruments they're using, you know, they smash them all up and they make it so loud. It's fascinating, really, if you, could, if you just stand back. But Master talks about it here. Where do these people come from? Well, they come from that flash of light in the astral world. Now, you, one has to take this with a little common sense in the sense that your consciousness is defined more than by one second. You know, every, everything that you bring to whatever relationship you have. There's many arguments for um, self-restraint. Um, and this is certainly a good one. Um, but it, it's just very interesting. And in earlier in these same chapters, when Master was talking 
just, I guess it was last week, when we talked about him having that photograph and showing the photograph. And if you want to attract a soul, then you can, you know, be celibate for six months and then you'll attract the soul. And that very soul was born to him. Even whether or not one is participating in any of these things, it certainly is interesting. And it certainly starts putting forward um, a very intelligent training that is simply not offered nowadays. I, um, I spoke to several high school girls that uh, were doing a, a film project for their class. And uh, they were juniors or seniors in some local high school. And they dressed very much, and they were, they were full-grown, full very attractive women who were in their 16 or 17 years old. And they dressed like their peers dressed, which was, it was summer, which was, was just about as little as you could wear. I won't say without getting arrested, because nobody gets arrested nowadays, but they, they were wearing just about as little as you could wear. And even that was insecure on their person. And just out of curiosity, because they'd been interviewing me a lot, I asked them about that. I asked them about the way they were dressed. Their first response was, what? You know, like, what? Because it was, I mean, it was mostly their bodies I was looking at, not at their clothes. And I, and first was, the, the first response was like the most idiotic of all, but this is the way everyone dresses. You know, that's just that. And the second thing I said, well, you know, um, do you ever think about, and I just said, you know, men have a, uh, men respond visually. There's a, there's a sexual response in men that's triggered by sight more than in women. Oh, they said. I said, did no one ever tell you that? And they said, this was the response, who would have told us? I don't know. Your mother, your father, your doctor, your guidance counselor, your teacher, your men, friends. I mean, somebody would have told you. What? What? It's just like zero. Absolute zero. They're all, they're all taught provocative things. But they're taught nothing, just about the mechanics of the whole reality. And just like, you know, how to be friends, how to be considerate, how to have a concept of your own effect on the world, just like so many obvious things. Swami Kriyananda remarked once that relationships, family life, marriage, he said, is never going to straighten out until we start bringing up whole generations of children who have a... a an actual understanding of what sexual energy is. I mean, just think how far we're going to have to go before we get to there. Because until that time, people are just uh, being whipped around like flags in the breeze. And so it's just a ways. But I mean, just, just, just little comments like this in here. Oh, the, the child that I get, if I want a certain child, I have to behave in a certain way. And if I'm careless in the way I behave, Certain things are going to happen. Oh, that's interesting. Who would tell you that? Well, somebody certainly ought to. But it's a long ways away. And this is also, Swami described, it's just the sign of a changing age. You see, all the form has broken down. All the form is broken down, and all the energy is accelerated. And this is just one more area. And it's not, it's not like, um, the, it's not like that we have to single this out as the most sort of significant. It's just like we're just making a checklist of what happens when societies just begin to 
morph into something else. And we're just morphing because all of the, uh, anything you could rely on is just being washed away. And, but as I said to a friend of mine, uh, who's about 50 years younger, <laughs> I said, the good news is society is giving you no values at all. So whatever values you have are going to come completely from inside of you and they'll be genuinely your own values, which actually is, is true and powerful because merely, as Swami said, to be good because you don't have the energy to be bad is not really the same as being good. <laughs> to be, as Master put it, to be virtuous because you genuinely in your heart um, recognize the greater value of virtue then it's really yours. Otherwise, you're just waiting for the opportunity. And as soon as, the, as soon as you can, as soon as you're sure you won't be caught or the consequences won't catch up with you. But that's quite different. Yes, Sneha, do you want a, a microphone? Since we were, uh, you, were just, you were talking about women's, um, how women dress mm -hmm. and how things are going to the absolute extreme in the Western world and the Eastern world, they... Um, well, in the Middle East, at least, there are a lot of countries who are going the exact opposite extreme. The Burkas, yeah. Where they're trying to find the strictest ways yes, you can exactly. restrict women and cover them and hide them and persecute them just because sleeves are shown or their feet are shown. Uh, so, I mean, both ways there is perver perversion in the way they perceive human relationships. Yeah. Well, there's this panic among those who are accustomed to being protected by form. They're just panicked, absolutely panicked. I mean, there was a cartoon I saw that was just, you know, this is the two points of view. The, there's a, an American or a Western European, just cartoon. There's a woman and she's wearing the tiniest bikini that you can imagine and a giant pair of sunglasses. And then on the other side, you see a woman in the full burqa and the only thing that's showing is her eyes. <laughs> just like, oh, I see. It's completely, you know, just completely different. What was interesting to me when I, I went through D Dubai and I just sort of passed through and that was the first time I'd seen uh, women in burqas. And uh, burqa, that's the right word, isn't it? And uh, first thing I realized is that a stylish woman can make a burqa look really, really attractive. <laughs> I mean, really, it, a woman with style walks through the airport in a black burqa, and also the burqas are different. Some of them, they're, they're cut differently. The fabrics are different. I mean, women are incredible. They will find a way. So they're these beautiful fabrics, and these, they're black, but they have jet beads on them. But the woman has panache, and she's just walking through. I was just astonished. And then the other thing I, I began to watch is the consciousness of the women was exactly the same. I mean, it just it might have been the Safeway in Palo Alto. They were, uh, they just were just the same people. Uh, they, they were just dressed in burkas. <laughs> you know, they were thinking about their kids. They were thinking about what they were going to have for dinner. They were thinking about their friends. They were thinking about what their hair looked like under the burqa. I mean, it was just, it would, you could see that it, it, it was such a superficial difference. But uh, it's, it's, it's startling a little bit startling to us. And, but my favorite part of that, when we flew from L.A. to India via Dubai, uh, in the L.A. airport there was a, a family, and there was, I don't even think it was the mother, I think it was the grandmother, but she was in her 
whole garb in the LA airport. But her granddaughter was not. Her granddaughter, and there, there were like three sons and one granddaughter, and they were all early 20s or late teens. They're carrying huge packages. I think they came to LA to shop. Just packages and packages. And she's dressed just in a completely modern way. I realized later she had some kind of a hat on, so she did have her hair covered. But totally modern and behaving totally modern. But when I saw when the family got off the plane in Dubai, somewhere along the way, she had, in fact, she was really covered. She might even had her face covered. But it was like, what a world. It was so, uh, I just thought of her. She goes to L.A., goes to all the, uh, she, it was all the designer shops, all her packages and her whole style. And then she goes back to this country and then the grandmother's herding her off and she's being shepherded somewhere and her brothers or cousins were, you know, just the same. I mean, it's a weird time to be alive. It really is. Even if we're not ourselves born into those um, cultures, they're still coexisting with us on this planet. So nothing is simple. That's actually what I'm really saying. Really, nothing is simple right now. And it's really easy for us to have points of view but it's just, it's a very complicated time. And we just have to, I, I feel like we have to uh, we can't jump to stereotypes. We have to move thoughtfully through many, many different things. And it's is it in here? Where was I reading it? Oh no, I was reading it in the rules of conduct for the Savika order, which I was reading earlier today for unrelated reasons. And one of the, which is really called guidelines. And he, he, he says, we mustn't continue unthinkingly following our habitual patterns of behavior. We have to stop and really consider, you know, given the new orientation we have towards self-realization, which of those habits is really consistent with what we're doing now? I mean, and those girls, of course, they weren't, they were just doing a film project. They didn't have any, they were intrigued by us, but they weren't really interested in us. But just like, oh, you know, what? Everybody dresses this way, you know? Oh, how fascinating. I had always been curious to ask. I was extremely interested, to, and I sort of felt they wouldn't be offended if I asked them, and they weren't. They were as interested in my questions as I was in their answers. You know, I, the fact that I'm so much older and in such a different part of life didn't give me a lot of credibility, but it still made me an interesting grandmother asking a question. All right. Any other comments or thoughts before we go on? You know, whenever, just for all of you, whenever anybody brings up this question about when does the soul enter the body, just as a point of public conversation, start with the thought that the person asking you may have been involved in an abortion. And so don't ever answer um, um, dogmatically, crudely, inconsiderately, because it's such a tender subject for people. You know, it could be the man or the woman, you don't know who you're talking to. So you, you have to answer definitely, because Master was unequivocal. 
but you want to answer in such a way that if this is an intensely personal question that people are asking you, that you don't break their hearts before you even have a chance to talk to them. I know Swamiji has, I know he was talking to one person who felt just terrible because of, a, of you know, a long time earlier, an abortion, the woman. Swamiji just said, oh, don't worry, the soul's been reborn by now. And he wasn't just talking generally, he was, you know, that, that soul has been reborn by now. Um, meaning, lots of things happen. But, but I've, uh, you only have to make that mistake once and you'll never make it again. So I'm trying to help you from ever making it once. Okay. Because the most unlikely people, you just don't know. 178. The master was reminiscing one day. There was a woman in our ranch, ranchi school in India, he told me. She was a disciple of this path and was very humble. She served me devotedly hand and foot, as they say, obeying strictly everything I asked of her. Everything, that is to say, except one. What's really interesting, Master talks about this. You know, Master was very young during those years at the Ranchi school, and he just, uh, you know, he was Im immediately took on his position, of course. Um, but this, it also, when I read this whole story, which we'll read through here, uh, you realize how many how many threads there are to a master's life and how wherever you're standing you just see the tiniest part of it and so much of what they do I think of this because of Swami of course so much of what they do they don't tell you they just uh, on Sunday I referred to Swami being invited to be the savior of some other planet remember a part of me I thought later well maybe later he did say yes how would I know <laughs> how would I know whether or not he was traveling to another planet why would he tell me okay I asked her everything that is to say except one. She insisted on going about barefoot. I warned her not to, but she didn't consider this piece of advice serious enough to heed, though I was as insistent on it as she was. She continued to go barefoot everywhere. When I left for America in 1920, I made her responsible for initiating those into Kriya Yoga who asked humbly for it. What's so interesting? Who, who is she? What was her name? What role did she play in the school? You know, how many uh, unknown saints did, how many disciples Master was taking care of? Um, it also helps because in the present situation in our ongoing or has been um, relationship with Self-Realization Fellowship in which, you know, it's argued that this is the only one and there can't be a second one. And then you hear about this woman in, in Ranchi that nobody even knows her name, who Master left in charge of initiating people into Kriya. Just many different things happen. Upon my return there in 1935, I asked her, how many people have you initiated? It would have been 15 years. Almost with embarrassment, she answered, oh, not many, Guruji, only 5,000. 5,000? What a huge number. You just think also, like, how conscientious she must have been. You know, she must have just constantly been training and getting people ready and then offering it. She must have been doing nothing else. Still, wherever she went, it was barefoot. And still, I insisted she mustn't. 
Some time later, she absorbed a disease through the soles of her feet and died. She needn't have died that way had she listened. It is important, you see, to be faithful in everything Guru tells you. Such an interesting story. There is much food for thought in this story, Swami writes. A few readers may imagine on hearing it that the spiritual path resembles a game of musical chairs where the ability to continue in the game depends on sheer accident. It must be remembered, however, that the master wasn't advising the woman casually merely to wear shoes. He insisted on it repeatedly. People do often die, moreover, of apparently quite trivial causes. She had a karma to die that way. He wanted to prevent that karma from bearing fruit. St. Lynn, the Master's chief disciple, died at a relatively young age. Dr. Lewis insisted to me later that it was because St. Lynn had not considered it necessary to heed the Master's caution to be less particular about his diet. Swami says, who knows? I remember how often the Master warned us, you must listen to what I tell you, even in the little things. I think we may take his words to mean especially in the little things. For these particularly, though they seem unimportant, may be vitally important for one, especially if he emphasized them repeatedly. He was thinking of our benefit. It was not the Master's way to insist strongly. If he spoke earnestly about anything, however, one did well to listen to him carefully. Few people, of course, have the benefit of a living guru. They should at least watch, therefore, for tendencies in themselves that they tend to push out of sight, things their conscience tells them that they ought or ought not to do that seem to them unimportant. They should look carefully, especially at anything in themselves that they'd rather ignore. For that very wish to ignore it, there may be a danger signal. Wow. Swamiji, you know, the, the, the thing about Dr. Lewis saying that um, St. Lynn was too fanatical about his diet, when you read Sister Durgamata's book, you really see that he was really intense about it all the time. She spent a huge amount of her time making sure that he had the food that he wanted, and she talks also about just how long it took him even to have any kind of a meal because he was so exact about how much he would masticate the food and so on like that. It was just always, and when she tells the story, it was always an ongoing thing that he had to have just exactly what he wanted, which was not really Master's um, guidance to his disciples. Um, when I've heard Swami reference Dr. Lewis's suggestion, um, Swami in, in this one I think he feels honor-bound to put it in, and he says, who knows? Uh, Swami didn't, uh, I won't say he gave it no credence, he just didn't know what to think about it. It was hard for him to uh, put it in any kind of a perspective. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's interesting, I think about Swamiji, because when Swamiji was a young monk, he started skipping dinner so that he could meditate more. And when Master found out that he was skipping dinner, uh, Swami just thought that Master would approve. Well, I'm skipping dinner because I want to meditate more hours and I don't want to uh, have that 
shortened or changed because I have to eat and then I can't do my kriyas. And Master said, no, you must eat three times a day. That's what he said to Swami, you mustn't skip dinner. And it was, it was extremely interesting and notable in Swamiji's life that he always ate three times a day. I mean, and, and for those, sometimes when we would travel with him, we would much rather have eaten two times a day, but he always ate three times a day. And he didn't necessarily, Master said to him, you don't have to eat a lot. But it, there was also something about the way Swami always did it, that it, it always, the word I want to use is there was something childlike about the way Swami ate three times a day. And he, it just, he, you could tell, even when he was doing it, that it was because Master told him to. And it was one of those things that would have been easy uh, to dismiss. Um, my own habit is not to, you know. I prefer to have a late breakfast and then just eat twice. I rarely eat three times a day. But Ma Swamiji always did. And a full meal, and he would sit down, you know, just every time. But I think it falls into this category. And you have this, you can just hear this woman, um, and certainly she was very humble. She lived in India, and if they, out in Ranchi, it was probably a country area. It was not who knows who she was. It was not so unusual to go around barefoot. And, and she would just, I'm sure she just heard Master say it, but just didn't put it in the category of anything that she really, you know, needed to do. Uh, I, I'm, I can't think of other examples from uh, Swami's life in things he said to people. They just haven't come to me. Although probably I've forgotten all the ones he said to me. Um, but the point being, I think the point being is that we need to move thoughtfully in everything that we do. We don't have the benefit of you know, the living guru sitting there actually saying this or that to us. We also have to be careful, and, and this, is, this is the much trickier part. Um, because you don't have Master there, but even I watched when Swami was there, people have a way of interpreting things according to their prejudices, whatever those prejudices are. And inner guidance is very subtle. And merely because we have a, a, an idea that um, something is right for us, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're, well, this is, this is the way I think about it. We have a subconscious as well as a superconscious. And the subconscious is, are those vibrations that are comfortable and familiar to us. And they're uniquely internally our vibrations because they are the collective vibrations of the chakras. And uh, I remember this, let me think how this exactly went. Oh, this man was very determined on a certain course of action that seemed self-evident to everyone but him that it was not a good course of action. But he kept talking about how inspired he felt whenever he did whatever it was that he was insisting on doing. And I had the opportunity with Swami during those years, he would often um, allow me to sit in when he was talking with someone and then afterwards I could ask him. And I said, the impression I have is that this man feels so in tune with what he's decided to do because he's blocked out all input 
and he's he's circled himself within his own subconscious vibrations so naturally he feels very comfortable and he's he's taking that comfortable feeling as a confirmation when i when i actually help people through classes and so on trying to to talk about intuition and guidance i ha i have to try to point out that there's progressive levels of of intuition and um when i was 18 years old and i was working in a Well, I was 19. I was working in a law office in San Francisco. Maybe I was a little older than that. And uh, this woman was engaged to be married. And I had very little experience of life. I was very young. I, I, let me, to be really, just to be accurate, I was probably about 22. And uh, I had very little experience of life. But I've always been... Uh, um, I guess the phrase then was nonconformist or more of a bohemian. I just wasn't, I wasn't conventional. So I, I often took, I rarely paid attention to the trends in the magazines. This woman was utterly conventional, just conventional like to the marrow of her bone. I know everyone is individually endowed, but I don't think she was. I think she was just, she was um, cut out of something else. But... She was having a wedding, and the, her wedding, and the entire wedding was out of the magazines and the books, everything. And I remember vividly, because I was so inexperienced, how horrified I was that a person would do something that to me should be so personal, just doing it entirely from what was done. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get my mind around it. I was so immature. But... Uh, When I really, years later, when I had to start talking to people about intuition, I said, if you, if you have no idea even what suits you on any level, individually, it's better to have subconscious intuition than to be entirely ruled from outside. In other words, just to know, it, it doesn't have to be God-inspired, just as long as it's your actual preference even if it's entirely from your scars and it's not really expanding you at all, at least it's yours. It's not the magazine. Or at least in the magazine you've actually chosen that this is the dress I really like and not just the one that my mother said I should wear or whatever it might be. So you, to be self-directed from any level is, is the first step. But then we want to be self-directed from a, a more and more subtle level because everything is directional. And it's not so easy once you start getting subtle because there's just so many factors. You know, going back to this woman, I'm sure this woman had her barefoot completely figured out and how important it was to her. And I, I can even imagine how much she liked it. I used to walk barefoot around Ananda Village a lot in the early years of the seclusion retreat when we didn't have all that horrible gravel on the paths. The gravel on the paths made it necessary to wear shoes and it was a really unpleasant day when it came in. Prior to that, all summer long, there was this really soft dust. And you could just really walk around. And I absolutely loved walking around barefoot. It was partly, it was this, this um, romantic image of some Indian village. But nonetheless, because I liked that so much, if Swami had told me not to, it would have been, um, I would have resisted. Because it had so many elements to it. This woman was very humble. She probably identified with the humble people. Maybe she wanted to be really poor. 
um, who knows what it was and it would just be hard because it would resonate with her I mean the master putting it in she still didn't hear it the only actual solution I know for really being able to discern is to cultivate in your life people whose impersonal um, perception of you in a spiritual way that you can trust it that doesn't mean you rely on it blindly but that you can trust it and you have to practice using it that's what I, I say to people you've got to find people in your life that you can actually ask who will tell you because you have shown yourself willing to listen and it gets very subtle because if people who have um, who are capable of really perceiving are also going to be sensitive to your openness because it's just you, you I mean I watched it again with Swami with myself and many people you go in saying just tell me anything you want and but but you mentally <laughs> put such a narrow frame around that or I the the story I tell in a my book about him is the man who decided to go and live somewhere else for a period of time and every time Swami would see him he would start the conversation by testing the water to see if the man was willing to give up his idea of what he was going to do because he was sort of off on some project if he was ready to give it up yet and as soon as Swami would, could see that he was still committed to it Swami would switch to giving him creative ideas and how to succeed and uh, he did that for 10 years interestingly the, when, later on when I showed that story to the man he didn't uh, he didn't believe it had happened I actually had a dilemma about what to do about that story I, I, I took it to Swami and I said you know but this is what happened he said oh yes of course so I decided I would print it anyway because Swami did it very subtly because he just Swami did it so subtly that you had to really be watching because the end was in each conversation Swami was giving him creative ideas for how to carry on and only finally after 10 years when the man said you know I'm just thinking of giving up what I'm doing and coming back Swami said I think that would be lovely as if it had just been spoken for the first time so you really have to work at this this is not and that's why, um, living or not, you have to think real carefully here at the same time without becoming so fanatical about every little thing that you, you're also as confused that your subconscious mind is making you fanatical. I loved the uh, Ananda, Los Angeles. They, every week when they send out their newsletter, there's some little personal article that Dharma Devi or Narayan or or somebody from their rights and uh, Narian wrote one in, in response to people's anxiety about the election and he had about four or five things that you could do the first one was drink fresh orange juice he said Masters said it's very good for the nervous system and it gives you courage <laughs> it was just perfect but you know you have drink fresh orange juice well, I'm really upset about the American election. I have to start drinking fresh orange juice. In, in reverse, I was seeing it. It's like, Master told us to do a lot of different things. And we can't, we don't, we just don't have time to do all of them. 
So you have to really think, though, what are the ones that actually really do resonate with me and be, just be very careful and not too isolated in your decision-making. Even just with your peers, what to speak of someone whose wisdom you trust, try to share in such a way that feedback is possible. That's the most important thing because you can share in such a way that your friends have no choice to say, but oh, that's great. Or you can share in such a way that you're really having a conversation. Uh, if all your friends agree with you, um, and maybe you have wonderful friends, but you also have to just ask yourself, how am I presenting things? It's very, very subtle. I recently, uh, I, I was recently thinking about a, a friend I know who went through, through a very um, serious and interesting test and, and one of the effects of that test was to make them very humble. And it, I was really conscious of how different our conversation became afterwards. And I had never thought, them, thought of them as being arrogant. But I realized that there was just such a different level of receptivity. It also made me realize how, um, how subtle human conversation is. That you, one can be... Um, dictating responses without even knowing it. And all of that ends up confusing you. You know, in my, in my book I have several examples of that. Um, this one person who came to Swami and really wanted him to endorse a life direction she was going to take, which uh, he didn't want to endorse. And so he said, uh, well, I bless you. And the person came out saying, Swami approves. No, Swami did not approve. <laughs> Swami said, I bless you. But he didn't say, I bless your decision. And the, the life direction uh, produced a lot of grief. And Swami said afterwards, wanted to spare the karma, but couldn't do it. Prevent the karma, just like this. Couldn't do it. So let's take a little bit of break, and then if you have any questions, we'll, we'll start there. We were talking about guidance, we were talking about bare feet, we were talking about listening to the guru, we were talking about whether Rajasi actually would have lived if he hadn't been so fanatical about his diet, which seems quite counterintuitive, doesn't it? And I'm not about to comment on that. Swami also really, you know, his last paragraph is, <clears throat> if we don't have the benefit of a living guru, at least watch for tendencies um, and that they tend to push out of sight things that your conscience tells you that you ought to do um, or ought not to do that may seem unimportant. You should look at it carefully. You never know. Um, Master um, made the comment that you should never take even one sip of alcohol because you never know what scars you might have. And so you would think, oh, that's such an extreme Measure. I mean, people nowadays, you know, you, you initiate your own children into this sort of thing. Master says, don't even take a sip because you just don't know. And this is partly, again, why sometimes small things that you really, this is not for me, I need to stay away from this. One shouldn't uh, disregard those ideas. Okay, any other comments or questions? Then let's go on. 179. The Master sometimes reminisced with us, as I said, about his boyhood days. 
I remember going to the Ganges for a bath one day, he told us. My practice was to stand in the water up to my neck, singing to God. I would visualize the water's flow as God's flow of grace. Isn't that just a beautiful image? For the, anybody who's been uh, to the Ganges anywhere, of course, what we see now is not what it was like when Master was there, when the population was so much less and the, everything was just cleaner and nicer. But just imagine just walking down to the river and just standing there, feeling the water flow over you. That day, as I was returning from the river, I met, I met an aunt of mine. On seeing me, she cried out, Disgraceful child, look at you! I looked down and saw that my body was completely naked. It's such a sweet story, I love this. I'd left my clothing on the riverbank. <laughs> I just hadn't noticed. I looked at her calmly and said, The sin is in you. Also, Master was so confident. You know, his aunt is... Uh, chastising him, chastising him and she was the one who was ashamed, he wasn't ashamed at all um, impertinent brat, <laughs> angrily she slapped my face nothing could accept me that day however, quietly I turned away and singing to Divine Mother, retraced my steps to the riverbank where I retrieved my clothes you know the um I mean, Master, that was quite a scene. His aunt slaps him. He refuses. He's standing there naked. She's upset with him. He refuses to be upset. She slaps him. Nothing could upset me, though, and he just turned and walked away. It's just a picture of the boy that you don't actually think of all the time. I remember Swamiji uh, he gave a satsang in Seattle when there was a whole little troop of young boys there, and he gave a satsang for the children, and he, he said to the children, you know, be good, but not too good. He said like that, <laughs> meaning show a little spunk. Don't just do what everyone tells you to do. And they were really quite a, a, <clears throat> a formidable little group of boys. <laughs> and I could see all the mothers just rolling their eyes. But uh, they had spunk. They weren't just uh, going along with what was told, told to them. So be good, but not too good. Have a little spunk of your own. Well, Master certainly did. So, okay, number 180. I have, to, I have to give myself a better arrangement here. Number 180. Laurie Pratt, who, as I've said earlier, and as readers of my book, A Place Called Ananda, will recall, was to become, in later years, my severest test. But she was, for some time, one of my dearest friends. She once told me the following story. You know, in the early days in the 1920s, Master didn't talk about creating a monastery. One day I entered his study to find him smiling broadly. Would you like to be married? he asked. I hadn't thought about this possibility and wasn't particularly interested in it. As things turned out, however, I did get married later on. Maybe he was seeing marriage in my karma. At any rate, he certainly didn't indicate to me that he was opposed to my marrying. Lori returned several years after her marriage, um, several years after her marriage, returned several years after her marriage to Mount Washington. To me, Walter, the master said regarding her, she was never touched inwardly by that experience. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Most of his highly advanced disciples either were or had been married. 
including St. Lynn, Mr. Black, and Dr. Lewis. He doesn't mention Gaunamata here, but she was also had been married. She was married for a long time. Durgamata was only married brief, briefly, uh, but she had been married. But Gaunamata, her whole life she was married. Mira Brown was, I think, the mother of uh, Marinalini. He once said, if what marries out of necessity he will have to reincarnate to reach the point where he wants to live only for God. The key to that last sentence lies, of course, in those three words, out of necessity. What did the Master mean by them? As I understand them, he meant that if a person marries to fulfill an actual emotional need and a desire for an earthly companion, he must return to find fulfillment in God alone. Out of necessity doesn't apply, in other words, to social or family pressure or to some outward convenience. You know, when I uh, have contemplated the married, unmarried, renunciate, having sort of <clears throat> had my own in-and-out relationship with these ways of life and trying to be unbiased um, but not without willpower. The word that I've come up with is I don't want to do anything by compulsion. And that's really the point, you know. I, I don't know if being, you can be monastic out of compulsion, but you could. I've seen people who've entered the monastic life um, out of fear. And it's not really, it's not really... Uh, a genuine vairagya, not a, not a genuine disinclination, but more of a tremendous anxiety, a fear of, of well, we should have a healthy fear of maya, so I'm, I want to put this in exactly the right way. Uh, this was more true in those very early years of Ananda, um, the, the, the aberration that Swami himself needed to correct, where people were thinking only about what I should do, not about what I really feel inwardly inspired to do. And, you know, in, inwardly inspired and compelled by karma um, get a little mixed up because most of us are compelled by karma. But it's being out of necessity is the phrase use, he uses, but it's just compelled by karma, having no capacity to stand back and even objectively assess whether or not this is really the right direction but just having such a, a, a compelling energy towards something out of necessity, out of a desire for companionship, out of sexual energy, out of um, loneliness, a thousand different things. What we're always looking for is freedom. Swamiji also, it's a very important thing to put in here because among the many differences between Ananda and SRF is the commitment on SRF's part, which Swami quotes at great length in many of his treatises about um, uh, Diamata's position about Master's work and how she has she led SRF compared to what Mas what Swamiji understood Master to mean, and that, you know SRF came to the conclusion that Master came to start a monastery at least at various points. Daya essentially presented that to Swami. Master came to start a monastery. Well, that was her destiny. Master called her, called Daya his nest egg. 
and to a certain extent he sort of especially he sort of she became the a core renunciate in him building up a renunciate order but master tried to start a world brotherhood colony with householders and 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 you you get into that position swami writes about this so in so many different places about the need of our age is not necessarily at this point for that kind of renunciation because what people are feeling drawn to do is to live in a more integrated way because this is dwapara yuga coming up the kali yuga requires that the forms be very separated because there's just no uh, there's no way to to merge the energies if you're if you're going to live for god alone you go out in the desert and that's what you do but nowadays there's just a very strong disinclination for that traditional monastic life i you know that doesn't mean that there isn't a, a place well there's always a place for renunciation and there's even always a place for monks and nuns but even still it's a more it seems to be a more integrated rather than a more isolated life it's just sort of where we're living right now so swamiji felt it very important to quote taramata who's one of the oldest one of the senior disciples master didn't talk about starting a monastery and he didn't have this sort of profound aversion kamala silva swami didn't mention either who was also married in fact as, as we all heard master picked out her husband for her you know this or he predicted that this man was going to be her husband and vakyanamata's husband he said you know she was a, he was a real yogi and so that he just it, it absorbed that into um, peggy deets at the end of her life married strangely she married like at the age of 70 or something like that yeah at the very end she got married she was never a nun but she was an unmarried woman and at the very end she married just a little bit of extra karma just to take on so swami's just trying because also because we've had a whole section here and simultaneously we've had a whole section about how firmly and definitely master trained the monks and how dynamically he proposed to them that this is the only sensible choice in your life this is the one you want and it says here if you marry out of necessity you're going to have to come back until you overcome that until you overcome that compulsion Pardon me? Out of necessity. What meaning if you're compelled? Yeah, if you're inwardly compelled, if you're not free. And you know, these longings are very 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 subtle. And it just it takes a long time to work it through. That's why we we need to just be we need to have we need to have the strength within ourselves because we know that this is who I am supposed to be. and this is where my happiness comes from and this is what my life is about and not um not try to strengthen ourselves too much with external dogmas or with external judgments because then we just get ourselves in trouble later yes tricia so if you marry out of compulsion you have to come back this is what he says here doesn't he what if you don't marry what if you have that compulsion but insist on not marry marrying and stay a, uh, a monk and grit your teeth but always wish for still something else still have that compulsion you still have to come well, back i'm thinking well yes 
I mean, um, if you're suppressing a desire rather than transcending it. But see, this is where it all... Pardon me? Any desire. Yeah, and, but no, but that's true. But, but, but the fact is, sometimes you transcend it by disciplining it. Because you, you're, the mere fact that you know that this is a life you're supposed to lead in this incarnation or forever doesn't mean that it comes effortlessly. So, and this is, this is the, you know where you're supposed to be, you may be often tempted away from it, you may even slip, you may even get really confused. Taramata was there, she left, she got married, she was married for a while, she realized it wasn't for her, she came back to being a renunciate because she sorted the whole thing out and that's what happened to her, yes. I, I think the confusion is, like it sounds so specific. Does something actually click into place when you say, I do? Like just to, to put it another way, like there was, a time in my, there was a time in my life when I really wanted to get married and if I had gotten married, it probably would have been out of compulsion. Right. And I don't feel that way now. I don't know if I'll always feel that way, but for right now, I'm happy being a monk. Right. But, you know, the fact that I would have, you know, is that... Well, you were protected. I, I mean, would it actually... Yeah, I mean, so it seems like the just going through with the formalities of the ceremony to actually making me become married, um, it doesn't seem like that should affect my karma. I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that I'm my inner saying. state was yeah. such that that compulsion was there. Right. That seems more important than whether the wedding actually happened. Right, but if, if the wedding had actually happened, then you would have been swept into a whole lot of other experiences and samskars could be awakened, car new karmas could be created. So it, it matters because merely because one has an inclination, if one actually then follows through on that inclination, it just releases a whole torrent of other possibilities. Plus in, now, in, in this particular case, you're embroiled with someone else's karma who God knows where that can also take you. Is that, is that responsive to what you're saying or have I not understood you? I mean, I, su I suppose it is because, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, there's just all that other karma mixed up. It's yeah. not just that one issue of that one particular compulsion. Yeah, it's everything It's everything else. that goes with it. And, and, but see, that's why specifically Tara, Master says to Tara, would you like to get married? Not particularly, but then eventually she does. But she goes off for a while. She, even came, she came back with a daughter. You know, she had a child, and then it didn't work out, and then she came back. I've heard this story told, though, that Master told her not to go, because when she came back, when I'm, I'm, this is a story, different story I've told that's not, not Swami's not telling, where one of the nuns said, how dare you come back after leaving? And they implied that Master had said no, but maybe it was just their point of view that Master had said no, rather than that he actually said no to her, but she said, Tara said, um, do you want me to worship my mistakes? You know, I made a mistake and now I'm back. It's like, why would I just stick with it? Because I, I made the wrong turn. So what were you going to say? Maybe they were just assuming that leaving the monastery was inherently bad. That's exactly right, because Tara actually tells a different story. She never got the impression that he really, and then she comes back and he said she was never inwardly touched by it, which meant that she hadn't really shifted from her fundamental 
God alone attitude and finding her fulfillment just with God, even though she had carried out a whole marriage and even had a child. So it's all very um, not necessarily obvious what, what people are doing. So you have to know yourself uh, what your energy is. And I certainly, that's why I came up with the word compelled, because there's many, many things in my life that what God really wanted me to do was extremely interesting to me, but not the first consideration, except in a very dimly theoretical way, because my compulsion to do it was too great. And I mean, I just needed to be honest instead of pretending. And that's where I was saying in the, at that period of time in the monastery, just before the 1980, when Swami shifted himself, people were just trying to do what they were supposed to do. And it was a very confusing time to try to understand. And Swami had to himself just, you know, take the cork out and let people just do what they had to do. But see, to me, the important point is not even so much whether you marry out of necessity, um, is that you, be, you admit that you're marrying out of necessity <laughs> and just say, I hope God approves or I'll do my best to make this a spiritual thing. But you, it, it's just a fact. If that's where you are, you have to say it. I mean, we all do. We do everything out of necessity, most of us. If we didn't, we would live very different lives. I certainly find myself in that category. And yeah, therefore, I'm going to have to come back. So one tried, yeah, I just, I just accept it. Too many compulsions to be resolved. Yes. Um, I'm a little confused because what I'm I heard you say when you made the distinction between uh -huh. um, doing marrying out of necessity versus compulsion, the example you gave was um, if you marry out of necessity, it's because you don't have a particular compulsion to do so. It's circumstances like uh, family pressure. No, 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 no. You're confused. So let me clarify. Oh, thank you. Okay, Master used the phrase out of necessity. The, I'm using the phrase, I felt compelled to do it. They're the, the same phrase, out of necessity and felt compelled, that's the same thing. The necessity was the inner, unset, out of necessity means out of an inner necessity to have a mate, afraid of being lonely, wanting the fulfillment of human love. That's the necessity he's talking about. I called that a compulsion. It's the same thing. Misunderstood necessity. Yeah, and he was actually saying the opposite. If you just marry because it was expected of you, because your family wanted you to, or it was convenient, more convenient for a woman to have a husband than to not have a husband. That's, that's well, that's external necessity. And, and Master said what matters is what's going on inwardly. What's going on socially doesn't really make that much difference. Because a lot of times women had no choice. They just, it was just expected, and it just would have been, just wasn't in their karma to even think about it. It's just, this is what you do. I mean, men also, actually men also, you know, I'm going to be a, whatever it is, I have to have a wife. That, and if you read, interestingly, this is a very extreme case, Pearl S. Buck, you know, who was the, the novelist who grew up in China because her father was a missionary. Um, uh, her, her, her fiction is good, and she also wrote a biography of her mother, a biography of her father, and a small biography of her own daughter who was not, uh, who didn't develop mentally in a normal manner. And they're very interesting books, all of them. 
Um, and her father, she describes as just this, like she said that, you know, such, such people don't exist anymore. He was just this, this in, in extremely intense, dedicated uh, Christian who believed that it was his job to save the souls of the Chinese heathen. But his attitude toward the Chinese, as she writes it, was completely different than all the others. He learned, he learned the Chinese, he learned the dialects, he translated the Bible into Chinese, and he had his family living among the Chinese instead of living in this isolated life. Most of the missionaries never really connected with the culture, but his father was, her father was very different. But the point of this is, at a certain point, his, I believe it was his mother, refused to allow him to go out and be a missionary unless he had a wife. So he just went somewhere and got a wife, just completely randomly, virtually, <laughs> which was her mother, entirely because he wasn't going to be able to go back to China unless he had a wife. <laughs> and then just the times being what they were, she, I mean, you know, she, he was a missionary, he was an important missionary, she felt called, it was all complicated. But for him, it was just a necessity for the career he wanted to have. And then once she was his wife, he did not have much real understanding of what that might imply. And so it's a very interesting story. But I, I, every time I think about what we were describing, it's just like it was a culture that was hard for us to think about, that, that he would have to do that. And he just did. And then there it was. And there was no divorce, and that was just that. And his mother just had to cope for the rest of her life. Quite fascinating. Well, that's an odd place to end it tonight, but that's where we'll end it. Yeah, for the year. <laughs> okay, great souls, we'll see you again in January. And a little in between. We started at 177 and we finished at 180. And I'll borrow a pen from someone to make a note, because I really won't remember. <laughs>